This is Howard Bloom. I'm the author of seven books, and uh, if you believe them, uh, Channel 4 TV in Britain has called me the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Freud of the 21st century. I'm going to be discussing some absolutely mind-blowing topics with Dove Baron. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the final part of this fabulous series, delicious episodes of Curiosity Bites with Howard Bloom. I don't need to tell you who he is because I've always told you in every single show, but he's a pretty amazing human being. And if you don't know who he is before, go listen to the previous episodes because they are amazing. Talking about amazing things here that are quite mind-blowing and expensive. Uh, this is a man with a vast array of knowledge and we want to jump into a couple of things, and one of which is where we started, which is this ecstatic experience that we're both fascinated with. But we were just talking about in the break, which was gardening the solar system. Let's jump into that. Well, once upon a time, there was a poison pill of stone, um, utterly as hostile to life as you can possibly imagine. It was the mother of all climate catastrophe. Um, it swiveled around its axis every six hours, which means that for three hours it was exposed to this poisonous stuff called radiation, and for three hours it was bathed in this equally poisonous stuff called darkness. Um, it had a tilt to its axis as it went around its sun, so it had these four massive climate changes, which we have come to call summer, winter, fall, and spring. And the molecules spread all over this planet were utterly poisonous to life. And yet life seized a hold in some tiny corner of this planet um, 3.5 billion to 4 billion years ago. And how did it manage to hang in there? How, we don't even know how it came to be. That's a whole other subject. But whatever it was in the beginning, there was less than a fingernail of this stuff, less than a fingernail pairing. And it was up against some serious problems. First of all, how do you survive on a planet that is utterly hostile to your very being? Hostile, but dove, nurturing sufficiently that life was able to come to pass in the first place. Mm -hmm. You survive by being a doom rider. You survive by being a catastrophe tamer. You survive by taking poisons like phosphorus mm -hmm. and turning them into pistons in the engine of life. Phosphorus was taken advantage of to uh, create a cycle of ATP, uh, adenine triphosphate, and ADP, adenine diphosphate molecules that provides every bit of energy you've got and I've got at this moment. We are piles of poisons that have been um, harnessed yes. to create something utterly, utterly beyond belief. And life survived by being imperialistic, yes. a colonialistic, and expansionistic. Life, first of all, was incredibly narcissistic. It made copies of itself over <laughs> and over and over again. That it used true. manic mass production and knew it was up against manic mass destruction. And the problem was for the manic mass production to outpace the manic mass destruction, especially because this planet would go on to have 142 mass extinctions. 
approximately one every 26.5 million years. So life's challenge was to take as many poisons as possible and turn them into pistons in the machinery of life, to kidnap, seduce, and recruit as many dead atoms and molecules as possible and make them part of the greening of life, of the life process, in as many ways as possible before the next mass extinction could hit. Not only that, to survive day and night, to survive summer, winter, fall, and spring, and quite a few other weather catastrophes, including volcanoes belching all over the place. Um, and life managed to pull that off. Yeah. And you and I are manifestations of that life process still working to pull that off. Knowing if you take a plane from New York to California and you look out the window, um, you'll notice that once you get past Pennsylvania, everything is brown. Mm -hmm. Why is that? because the amount of life on this earth is less than the skin on an apple, much less. It's as if the skin on that apple only existed on an eighth of that apple. Um, and the rest, what does life wanna do? Life has clearly shown that it's about expansion, it's yes. about um, extension, um, it's about invention, um, and it's about being as colonialist as you can possibly be to beat the next mass extinction. Now, life has done this with one poison pill of stone. And there are trillions of poison pills of stone just waiting to be kidnapped, seduced, and recruited into the process of life. Where are they? They're over our heads. They're over our heads. They are in the sky all over the place. They are the other planets of our solar system. They are the moons of our solar system. They are the asteroids of our solar system. And they are solar systems far beyond our solar system. One solar system after another, trillions of them, just waiting to be grabbed, gardened, and greened by life, even though life has still got only the most tenuous hold on this planet of ours. And so we are not running out of resources. We are running out of imagination. Oh, right miles. there, right, that's yes. it, right? We're not running out of resources, we're running out of imagination. So right now, 12 miles beneath your feet and mine, there are bacteria that are taking granite and turning it, kidnapping, seducing, and recruiting its dead molecules and kidnapping them into the process of life, making them part of biomass, yes. making them part of the green and living stuff on this planet. Now, if bacteria know that there are miles and miles of raw material beneath our feet just waiting to be kidnapped, seduced, and recruited and greened, why are we so stupid? I mean, are these bacteria nature? Of course they're nature. Yes. But nature works by creating new harvesters who harvest her in new ways. She is never raped. She is harvested for the sake of reaching the next level of whatever it is she's all about. And what is she all about? What is nature and this cosmos all about? This is a cosmos feeling out her next level of possibilities constantly figuring out her level of opportunities. 
and using stars, planets, stones, you and me as the fingers of that exploration. Imagine you've lost a contact lens in a shag rug. And so you take your fingers and you spread them out like this and you sift the rug with them. Every finger is a part of a search engine looking yes. for that contact lens. We are fingers of that search engine feeling out what uh, Stuart Kaufman calls possibility space, feeling out the next realm of potential for this universe. And if we had time, I could show you the whole 13.7 or 13.8 billion year history of the cosmos and show you how the, cos how the cosmos has done a Bill Chinnick, has trumped herself over and over again there is no such thing as raping nature. And once upon a time, uh, there was a set of living things that had invented a whole new technological and industrial process. And it was astonishing. It was taking something that absolutely could not be included in life because it didn't exist in many ways. Um, it wasn't a material thing. It was a wobble. It was just a very persistent wobble. It's called photons. It's the individual yes. units of life. And this particular industrial process grabbed those photons and again, inserted them into the machinery of life as pistons. Um, and the result was that these particular, these things were bacteria. They're called cyanobacteria, blue-green yep. bacteria. They invented photosynthesis, which is a desecration of nature if you're a purist. Um, yeah, it's taking yeah. virgin nature and, and fucking her over in a really big way, <laughs> raping her in a really big way. Um, but these creatures were able to harvest their environment. I mean, eating your environment is what it's all about for life. Find new ways to eat your environment. Amazing. And these things took in the things that they needed to nourish themselves, and they farted out the toxic remnants. So they were farting out toxic stuff. Now look, you can fit a colony of 7 trillion bacteria, more bacteria than all the humans who've ever lived, on the palm of your hand, and it's still so thin that you can't even see it. Yes. So what is a little bacterial fart? Nothing. But over the course of 2 billion years, those bacterial farts added up to what we call toxic pollution. They were farting out something that was poisonous to them. And eventually, the, the atmosphere was so polluted with this poison that there was a mass die-off. And it looked like all the life on Earth could die, poisoned by this stuff. There were little tiny bacteria that came along and figured out how to take this stuff and turn it to pistons in the, the process of life. And larger bacteria saw this, I mean, you know, we're using anthropomorphism here, but there was, this is reality. Yes. They somehow took in these little tiny bacteria and made a deal with them. We will give you the ideal home. We will take care of finding food for you. Um, you just give us the energy that you produce by harvesting this toxic stuff. And those cells that made that deal ended up dominating the earth. Why? Because this toxic stuff that was the ultimate in waste, in industrial pollution, was called oxygen. Yes. 
<laughs> yep, it's fascinating. And and so so nature works by using us to rape her, if that's the metaphor we that's choose. A pretty, to use. That's a pretty pretty tough metaphor, but I understand exactly where you're coming from. So and I'm looking before, for a better I, metaphor. <laughs> but you know, so, uh before we finish up though, I want to go to where we started because it is so important because it is a fascination for both of us and, and I've explored it all my life. And so have you, what is from your point of view, what is the ecstatic experience? Okay. Now let's look at, from you've looked at one, well, let's look at from the performer's point of view. I was 16 years old. Um, I, despite being radically unpopular, was named the head of the program committee, which takes means I was emceeing five school assemblies a week. They took place early in the morning before any of the classes. And I was programming two of those school assemblies per week. And uh, one day the juniors came to me and they said, we're having a dance, could you advertise it? They didn't realize the irony of that request. If there were a dance or social gathering of any kind in Buffalo, New York, I was cordially invited to stay as far away as possible preferably Cleveland or Albuquerque. Nonetheless, <laughs> I put a record on the turntable and I can't dance. Every two years, my parents tried to make me normal and one year it was by sending me to two semesters of dance class. I just couldn't dance. I can't do the box step, the foxtrot, any of those things. So I had a piece of music playing on the turntable. I went in front of the audience and my body started interpreting the music in ways you've never seen before in your life. And apparently it looked something like a Looney Tune drawn on a night when Chuck Jones had dropped a batch of LSD. Um, the guy who used to draw Tom and Jerry yep, and all of those characters. Um, it was insane. And I saw the face of the girl who hated me most in the school. I saw her pupils dilating. I saw her eyes widening. I saw her face melting. And then I saw she and all the other 350 kids who hated me I saw them melding together into that big amoeba blob we were talking about before. And I saw it reach its pseudopod out to me. And I had an out-of-body experience. I was on the ceiling watching this all take place. And I saw as the energy of the audience flowed through me, was transmogrified, flowed back down, and their eyes widened even further, and they melted even further into this common blob of energy. And for three and a half minutes, I was the tongue of that audience. I was the living embodiment of its soul. And when I finished, something really weird happened. This is something that never happened for a homecoming queen, never happened for a football hero, never happened for a, for, for a foreign student coming back from Italy, never happened for anyone. The audience surged to the foot of the stage as if it had been practicing this all their life, picked me up off the stage, carried me out of the room on their shoulders. Remember, these are kids who hated me. Um, and carried me up the walkway to the next building where we had our classes and only then did they put me down. So what was the ecstatic experience? The ecstatic, let's go back a step here. There are a hundred trillion cells that call themselves Dove, they don't call themselves Dove Varen. No. The, the collective calls itself Dove Varen. And if you took a cell from anywhere in your body and interrogated it and said, what are you a part of? 
they would only be able to describe their immediate neighborhood. There's no way in hell they would ever be able to describe a dove baron. Well, we humans ourselves in many of these larger bodies, many of them, they're called superorganisms. And I explain that in my books. And do we understand, do we see the larger whole, the dove baron of which we are a part? No, we can't. But in moments of ecstasy, we are lifted to something higher than ourselves, which is ironic because ecstasy reaches into the deepest pools of what we are and shows us what is highest. And for a minute, for a flicker, we experience that something larger, that emergent personality of a group that we are a part of. And sometimes if we're lucky, we can have the ecstatic experience of being the tongue of that group. The way that group expresses its most primal, visceral, emotional identity. And so that's my feeling about what the ecstatic experience is. But the description of what I experienced is actually the closest I can come to an answer. Now I'm trying to fit that into my bigger view of the universe. But to put it in the grand context of what we're talking about, when you become the soul of a group, a group aspires higher. Um, we can get some other year, we'll go into aspiring high and why that's a basic part of life, not just humans. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a part of that group's aspiration. And ultimately, what is that group's aspiration? Let's go back to garden the solar system, green the galaxy. We know that bacteria can go 12 miles beneath our feet and start kidnapping, seducing, or recruiting dead matter into the process of life. But we can do some, and bacteria do research and development as fast as we do. That's why we're in such a fight with the COVID virus Mm -hmm. right now. Um, There's one thing we can do that no COVID virus, no bacteria, no other form of life can do. We can take life out of the gravity well of Earth. And once you are out of the gravity well of Earth, getting anywhere else in the universe is relatively easy. Our job is to take life, which is expansionistic, imperialistic, colonialistic, growth-oriented, always trying to beat the next mass extinction, always looking for the next catastrophe it can harvest as a power source, and to take it to all those other poison pills of stone just waiting and aching to be alive. Or I coined it a, a, a slogan for the National Space Society, where I've been on the Board of Governors, and, I'm on the, uh, and I am on the Board of Governors, and I've been on the board, and I've had all kinds of functions. And it is bring space to life by bringing life to space. We must look up. We must see the next paradise just over our horizon, because the Chinese see theirs, and if they achieve theirs, and we achieve only the downfall, which is all in our heads, all in our heads, True. then it will be the end of freedom of speech and all of the other freedoms that you and I thrive on. Yeah, it's a very important place. And that's a good place for us to finish up because I think that it, you know, it is, it's looking at that understanding of the ecstatic experience is the, in many ways, the future of mankind, if we are going to continue to grow and develop them and as you said i too believe we must before we finish up i want to make sure that people know where they can find out about howard bloom uh, where they can find out about 
your 942 books and all the <laughs> wonderful resources that you have. Please tell people where they can find out more about you, Howard. Well, the first place is uh, look up Howard Bloom on Amazon and you'll find the books. Yes. The second place is howardbloom.net where you'll find all kinds of articles that I've written on a wild variety of subjects. But of course, you're going to have to go to the Dove Varen interview to see how all of them are pieced together. <laughs> well, we'll definitely do that. So if you stay with us to the end, we hope that you will. And for you, dear listener, dear viewer, you know, we really appreciate you staying with us. This has been an amazing show. If you got a lot of it, we want to hear from you. Yeah, again, you can join us on Facebook in the in the Curiosity Bytes group. You can also leave uh, your rate, uh, your reviews, your rating, and subscribe to Curiosity Bytes on wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share the show with everybody you know. Till next time, stay curious, my friend. Stay curious about how you can pursue the ecstatic and keep looking up to what's next. And I am out.